that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and I blog for EconLog. I'm the author of four books, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders. Great. Thank you for introducing yourself. Some people, well, a lot of people in economics probably heard of you, but could you tell us very briefly about how you got into economics and why you're interested in life extension and the whole concept of immortality? So I got into economics, let's see, in my senior year of high school, I started reading Ayn Rand and from her I learned about free market economists. And I got curious as to whether there was anything to it. And then I did regular economics at UC Berkeley and learned a lot more. I got my PhD from Princeton. And let's see, my interest in life extension. Well, let's see, I'd like to live forever. It seems obvious to me that it'd be really good if people could live forever. I don't want anyone except maybe for some horrible dictators, such people to die. Seems like it'd be great if my friends and family could all stay alive and healthy forever. Everything's going well. I don't know why I'd want it to end. And then for me, the main issue is, or where this impinges on my expertise, I would say, is that I do a lot of work on voter rationality and irrationality generally. And it seems like People that say they don't want to live forever or they think they want to stop other people from living forever, to me, this is almost a perfect example of a totally irrational view. And you know, my main issue with it is just, is it technologically feasible? So I don't see that it is yet. I hope that it becomes so. I mean, no one would be happier if I could be proven wrong on this. I would gladly lose all my material possessions in exchange to have actual, real, functioning life extension where I can just stay at this age forever. I'd like to turn the clock back. Honestly, I've got way too many aches and pains at 50. So I can go back to like 23 or so. That would be just about perfect. Uh, but I'll, you know, I'll take what I can get, honestly. <laughs> perfect. All right. I, I'm, I have to ask this question, even though I'm sure anyone could extrapolate the answer from the response you just gave. But as our podcast is called, I'm immortal, a little bit of a pun on the word immortal. What exactly does immortal or immortality mean to you? Is it just living forever or is there something else? Well, of course, I mean, I take just extra life, an extra month, an extra year of healthy life sounds fantastic. But yeah, when you say immortality, you know, to me, that means that I get to keep living in my physical body at a reasonable level of health for a, at least a really long time. So, you know, if it was a thousand years, that's not literally immortal, but still, holy moly, a thousand years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Well, to start off with, we've never interviewed someone into the field of economics. And when we did a little bit of digging, we saw that you had a post on EconLib, your website. And there was a poll, I think, forget how many years ago it was, but it was about how do economists think about immortality, life extension compared to the general public. And interestingly enough, I don't know what I was expecting, but there was a divide on some questions. For example, one of them was, do economists think that... Economists, economists. Economists. Oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> economists. <laughs> we all do it. Do they think life extension will be productive for the economy? And I think it was like 50-50 split. Is there a reason why there's sort of debate over this, why the answer isn't so straightforward? Right. So my best explanation is that the ones that are not so convinced figure that will keep the retirement age at 65, and then it's a problem. <laughs> so because if you've got 
well-functioning life extension and everyone retires at 65, then eventually you'll have like 0.01% of the population working and everyone else getting retirement benefits. That's not a viable system. Oh, okay. Wow. Answer's up simpler than I thought. Would the answer be different than if we never biologically aged, if everyone could stay, let's say you're 23 forever? In that case, would the answer be like 100% more productive? It's all good? Right. Well, again, you can imagine we all stop aging, but we keep our retirement system, retirement at 65. It is a problem, although it's not as severe as, as it would be if your health keeps getting worse, because remember, there's two main kinds of benefits that the U.S. government and almost all rich governments give to the elderly. One is just free money, retirement system, and the other one is free or heavily subsidized medical care. So yeah, if we could get our physical health down to a good level, we could basically get rid of the government health care. And then we would just be left with the retirements, which is probably reasonable forecast would be 60, 65% of the cost. But still, if we could get healthcare costs down, that would be great. So I want to jump back a little bit, maybe a little bit of a redundant question. But could you give the audience a brief explanation of how exactly the economy is tied to aging other than the basic, once you're retired, you no longer work? Yeah. So I guess that the most fundamental one is that while you're familiar with economic statistics like GDP, gross domestic product, which just measure the production of stuff, economists actually are generally much more thoughtful about it than those official stats would have you believe. And so for a lot of economists, we think about, well, what's the value of just living another year? And usually it's a very large amount of money. So a pretty common estimate is that the value of year of life is something like double your wage, because in addition to being able to work while you're alive, you also are getting some free time that you would enjoy on top of that, right? And if you can imagine the deal of suppose that you could stay, have another year of healthy life, but you have to be working X number of hours per year to pay for it. 70, 80, would you work? You might work 100 hours a week for the privilege of staying alive if that was really your choice. You might say, well, it's not great. But on the other hand, I'm alive. <laughs> so that's nice. One of the main issues anyway is that economists, when they are thinking about it, will monetize almost anything. And the monetary value of life is immense, right? So economists, for example, estimated, well, what's the cost of improved heart, heart health or stuff like that? Then it's crucial, not just for retirement, but for uh, what we call human capital. So when you acquire some skills, the general idea is, well, once you acquire them, you'll probably basically retain them for as long as you're using them. So if you live for a long time, then human capital investments pay off for a much longer time period. Now, that's why it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, learn a foreign language when you're 70. Like, when are you going to use it? What's the market payoff for that? Whereas if when you were 70, you had another thousand years to live, then yeah, I'll learn a bunch of languages. Eventually, it'll pay for itself. I don't know. <laughs> Eventually, I'll need that Japanese down the line. I don't know when or why or how. And of course, actually, because it's much easier to learn some skills when you're young, then there's additional economic benefits that way. Really, the implications go on almost endlessly. One thing just to know in terms of pure economic theory, standard economic theory taught in grad school begins with the assumption that people live forever, and then it's considered a modification to add on that you don't live forever. Oh, okay. But you know, like a workhorse of first year PhD economics is the infinitely lived agent model. So all economists with PhDs know about this stuff. And in a way, actually, our first answers come from that. And then it's only subsequently that we say, oh, yeah, well, what if we don't live forever? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. We mentioned human capital. As far as I see it right now, and what you sort of said is that if you have longer lives, you, human capital increases. So is economic life or the kind of life of a society, 
always limited by human capital or is there a circumstance where it's not? Well, it's always partially limited by that. There's a lot of limits on economic life. So there's human capital, there's natural resources, there's technology of other kinds, there's physical capital, really goes on forever. There's simple models where you just say it's all three things and either the models are oversimplified or you just define everything to be one of the three things. All right. Like a standard model will have everything's either technology, labor, or, or capital. And then it's like, well, tell me something and I'll tell you whether it's technology, labor, or capital, everything fits in the model. But then again, when you do real empirical work, that's when you realize, well, we're not really measuring any of those things exactly. We're just making a rough cut. Then there's could easily be some stuff that's missing. As a follow-up, jumping back a little bit, with people living longer, they can contribute to the economy more. I was wondering if there's some model that currently shows with our current lifespan. I don't want to put people as tools, but where people are most useful during their lifetime, when are they contributing the most to society? And at what point are they really like, man, they're more of a quote-unquote burden than they really are helping? Yeah, so right now, I think the standard textbook answer, probably right, is that human work productivity peaks between the ages of about 45 and 55. So this is where you've still got good physical health for the kind of jobs in the modern economy, because there aren't that many hard physical labor jobs anymore. And you've also got a lot of training and you've also got common sense is also at a maximum. So there actually is psychological research on common sense. You know, you've heard of IQ tests, there's also tests of common sense. And whereas raw IQ seems to peak around 18, but common sense peaks like 45 to 55. Now this is the sense in which for many practical tasks, you would trust an older person who wasn't quite as smart, but had life experience and perspective. In terms of sheer productivity, I would say that's optimal. Although, obviously, it wouldn't make sense to go and optimize human beings purely for production. You've also got to be optimized for consumption and get a balance. I would say I had less common sense at 23, but given that my back is hurting a bit right now, I want to be 23. I want to be 23. <laughs> I don't want to be 50. I mean, I've got more common sense now. Like I'm at my peak common sense of my life probably, but I'd throw some of that common sense away to have my back feel great. <laughs> With that extra common sense, you know you want to go back to when you didn't have it. Perfect. Right. <laughs> it's really only because I have so much common sense that I see that it would be better to have a good back. <laughs> yeah. So kind of on that idea. So with life extension, theoretically, you know, health span, people would live longer. Do you think that living longer could potentially push that peak productivity or economic beneficial age from 45 to who knows, like 200 years old. That makes total sense. So again, it depends on exactly how the life extension works. Mm -hmm. That's true. Right. There's many different kinds. There's also plenty of research on or bad physical health is bad for productivity. So yeah, I mean, if you just start getting rid of all these health problems, physical health problems, if you basically just freeze the basic hardware of the human mind, at that level, then well, at least for a lot of things, you would keep acquiring life experience. Again, if we just imagine going and like, we're going to freeze you as you are at 45, then I think that we would be bad at learning new languages, for example. So you want to get people at a much younger age for learning foreign languages, but for a wide variety of other things, then yeah, older is better for many kinds of learning. For pure memory, young is better, but for things where you can simulate memory with experience, probably heard about how chess champions are not actually good at memorizing a random assortment of chess pieces on a board, but they're very good at memorizing a board that has emerged in the course of play because knowledge is basically a crutch for memory or really the memory can be a very small amount. And then the mental organization that you have can replace almost all the actual memory. So that's a big help. Yeah. Cause we talked to some friends about this before coming to talking to you. 
And if we're talking to young people, one thing they're always telling us, well, we're young as well, but they're always thinking, wow, if everyone's living forever, how am I going to get a job? Like, isn't there going to be some gerontocracy where all the older people are keeping us from something and they're going to keep all this retirement around? They're going to stay in power. Do you think that's actually going to happen or is it different than how all my friends are thinking about it? Well, the first thing I would say is if that's the deal, gerontocracy for immortality, then let's go gerontocracy. Let's put those 90 year old people in charge. But I get to live forever. I don't care if I've got some mediocre job. If I have healthy life forever, I'll find other things to do. I'll savor my life. Yeah, but anyway, that's pretty crazy. Obviously, the startups, big deal, right? If you just go and take a look at the life expectancy of major corporations, I mean, I would say it's probably not longer than a human life, in fact. You go and look, for example, at the 50 biggest corporations in the US right now and the 50 biggest 100 years ago, there's almost no overlap. That's one really big thing to realize is that you know, their startups, people found them tend to be quite a bit younger, right? And things involving creativity and innovation and novelty and every reason to think that if we're immortal, then there's no reason why creativity would stop. In fact, there's a lot more reason to be creative, especially if, if no one is actually biologically old anymore, then a lot of the people who right now resent or just don't buy new stuff they won't be part of the market anymore. Everyone will be interested in new stuff and everyone will be interested in, I mean, at least more interested in the latest thing. There'll be very few people saying, oh, my mother, I don't need anything like that, a <laughs> microwave. And my mom never got a microwave. Really? Oh, wow. Like, oh no, I don't need it. <laughs> Starting to like came lately when she was 40, just made a decision, never have a microwave. So no doubt if microwaves had come around when she was 30, then she would have gotten right. one. But yeah just missed her window of flexibility. If you just had a biologically young world, then I would say we should expect that people would be more open-minded, have a lot of other problems. So like young people are more depressed generally, although I should be careful about that because a lot of old people are depressed because of their bad physical health. That's true. Basically, the main thing to know is that right now, if you can be physically very healthy and old, you're actually statistically about as happy as a human being gets. There are a lot of unhappy old people. That's because a lot of them are in terrible physical health. But it seems that for probably a lot of different reasons, health adjusted happiness just rises as far as the sky goes. As to what's going on there, it's a little mysterious, but that seems to be the actual fact of the matter. I'm going to not like myself for the segue I'm about to use. But speaking of older people and bad health, <laughs> do you think that if immortality did come into existence, will people opt into long-term care insurance more? Or will the common scenario where they get it very late still occur? Interesting question. So one thing is that insurance should just be a lot cheaper, at least per period, because you're so much less likely to need it. In economic terms, if it's cheaper for businesses, then the supply goes up. And then in terms of demand, that's the kind of thing where I would say that if maturity keeps rising with the chronological age, then probably the more mature thing to do is to get that insurance. Um, not totally clear, but still that's plausible. And obviously there's still reasons why even if people were immortal, their wages would tend to go up for a while because you're born without many skills or much in the way of experience. And then once you've got more of that, you've got more, more money lying around, so more reason to go and buy insurance. So if you got demand higher, supply higher, then basic econ tells you quantity will be higher, but price, we don't know. Price could go up or down, but quantity will be up if both supply and demand go up. The thing is, like, economists, oh, I said it right this time, I feel like you guys can answer, like, every question because it's people and society. So I'm going to try to word this. Hopefully, a lot of economists are evasive and boring and only talk <laughs> about interest rates. But, oh, okay. yeah, 
but all true economists are as you describe. Oh, okay, okay. Well, for those economists, then my question, hopefully, Brian, you're one of them. Earlier, you mentioned this, I think, infinitely lived agents. I've only taken like economics 101, but someone talked about overlapping generations. It's like some model oh. too. So there's a possibility where you have both infinitely lived agents and there's overlapping generations maybe combined in a way. Because right now, as far as I know, all of my bosses have always been older than me. And at some point, their bosses were older than them. Will it always be the case where if we live forever, the first generation that got that technology, will they always be the one who will run things in the society? Crazy. Right. So like I said, if you just look at the way that economies evolve over time, just randomness alone would prevent what you're talking about. There's luck in the world. There's unluck in the world. So you don't need any big theory just to say, no, wrong. It's not going to stay that way indefinitely. Never mind that forever is a long time. There's that too. So right, right. all of that is crazy. Then if you go and add on to the fact, look, in addition to luck, there's also the fact that in every new generation, there's just going to be some highly talented people mm -hmm. who will spring up and they're going to do startups or they will rise and take over existing organizations. And then furthermore, out of any group of people that are in charge, they're just going to be people who are stubborn and ossify and backwards looking. And so on top of luck, there's also systematic reasons why things just don't stay the same. If it was a technologically and economically very stagnant society, then what you're saying would be less crazy, although still crazy. But again, like the modern world is very technologically and economically vibrant. It's dynamic, right? New stuff is happening. I mean, stuff where when I talk to younger people, they say, do you know about GitHub? And like, no, I don't know about it. Well, like, how do you not? All the young people know about it. Like, well, you know, now I'm just doing my thing and figure by the time it was really important to know, I'll just be so old, it won't even matter for me anymore. But yeah, if I knew I was living forever, then I would be putting in more effort to stay with the times. I definitely am more youth oriented than 90 or 95% of people who are 50. The large number of friends are much younger than me. I enjoy it and, you know, they humor me. So that's nice. They say, all right, call your grandpa. <laughs> Not really grandpa. Here's what's going on now. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. And it does go both ways because there's a lot of important things they've never heard of. But <laughs> mm -hmm. nevertheless, I, I have plenty to learn from people younger than me. And that is part of a systematic pattern of why it is not going to be older people that run things forever. Of course not. So what about the population of people that don't want to work? Like, do people intrinsically want to work if they're given the choice? If I know my parents are not getting older, maybe I could sit at home and just feed off of their money for an extra 50 years as an immortal. Do people want to work? What's the case here? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what I would say is... Let me start by answering the easier question and then move to the deeper question. So how do people in general who are working feel about their jobs? And I say the answer there is that a large majority of people definitely do prefer working to nothing. That's true. All right. There's research on, for example, lottery winners. Even people who win the lottery big normally do want to go back to their previous job after some vacation. And furthermore, those that do quit, it seems to be because their money put a chasm between them and their coworkers. Now, as to why people like working, it seems like for most people, it's social. For most people, you want a place to go to see some people and do something with them and feel like you did something that was worthwhile and also be able to hold your head up high like I'm a productive member of society. It's a lot fewer people who are getting intrinsic satisfaction from the exact tasks they're doing. But you know, whenever you see a job that seems really boring, of course, part of it is that it might not be boring to the people doing it. But another part is well, 
the task is not that important for people anyway. It's just having something to do with some other people when you're part of a team and it feels like it's meaningful. That's really what's important. Now, I think that where a lot of the idea that people don't want to work comes from is that it's very painful to find work. So when work is handed to you, once you've got over the initial period where you have to learn the ropes and pay your dues, that's what people really don't like. It's humiliating and it's awkward and it feels bad. And that's something where people don't like. Now, sort of closely related to what you're saying, like if you did just have people that would just give you free money forever, then I think a lot of people would not ever try to go and get a job, not because they wouldn't like it once they got through it, but because they're short-sighted, they're myopic. And the initial part sucks. Mm -hmm. The initial part sucks. The part where you first have to go through the humiliation of finding a job, which is not fun. And then you have to show up there, low man on the totem pole, and that's not fun. And then you have to go and do things which are often very stressful. Like anyone who's ever like been a server or restaurant, the first month of doing that job is hell because you're screwing up over and over and people are looking at you like you're an idiot. And who wouldn't give up if it wasn't for the motivation of, I want money. <laughs> I don't want to be financially dependent. And or I can't be financially dependent forever. But then if you go and look at someone who's been a waiter for several years, then the way they feel about it is usually quite different. There is a, a hard core of people who are just super resentful and bitter about having to earn their living. I don't think it's more than five or 10% of people. I mean, even them, I think it's a lot of mismatch between the job they have and a realistic job they would like. There's some people where there's no realistic job they would like, like they have to be an astronaut or a race car driver or a professional athlete or something like that. You know, so there are some people like that, but for most people to be permanently unemployed is very depressing and brings feelings of meaninglessness and loneliness and isolation. So I think a lot of what's been so bad about COVID is that you're taking away the part of people's jobs that they actually like and that are important for them. And then you're just putting them in front of a screen, which maybe some younger people actually can get the same sense of social connection from a screen. I just can't. This doesn't work for me at all. Like I've got to be physically with people or I feel like I'm going crazy. It's like being in prison or something for me. I recognize there's variation on that, but most people who have jobs are happy to be employed and it's not just the money. There's also been great research on unemployment and happiness. And the basic story is that unemployment is terrible for happiness, even if you have full replacement of pay. Now, a lot of this probably depends upon being socially isolated. So if all your buddies have the same deal, then maybe you won't be so miserable, right? Which is probably a lot of what was happening during COVID. So oh, yeah. you're the one person who has no job and you just receive money from the government. Like it still is not a good feeling. And again, like your friends are busy, so you can't go and do stuff with your friends, but still that doesn't take care of the sense of being unproductive and being parasitical, which you know, these are natural thoughts to occur to someone. But there are plenty of people that could actually sponge off their parents indefinitely, but they're just ashamed to do it. This is not what my parents want for me. This is not what I ought to do. I ought to make my parents proud. I shouldn't just say, hey, you'll take care of me. So why should I lift a finger? Sucks to be you, parents. You work. I consume. Too bad. First of all, I guess I got to give my unemployed friend a call after this. Make sure he's doing okay. <laughs> but their next topic that we're sort of wading into. The thing about being unemployed is that moving to being employed, the problem is that often feels worse than being unemployed for a while. Oh, yeah. You're miserable. You're unemployed. Then someone says, go find a job. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to get less miserable here. And it's like, really what people want to do is to fast forward into the second month of their job. Right. And I'm sorry that like, we can get life extension. We're not going to get time travel. So there's just no way to do it. You just have to be philosophical about it and say, I'm just going to tough it out. 
Everybody else who has a job has gone through this. I can do it too. I don't want to do it, but I got to do it or else I'm just going to be stuck here forever. No, of course, it's very similar to like the lonely guy finding a girlfriend. It's like, I'm really miserable now. Well, how is getting rejected by a bunch of women going to make me any happier? Yeah, it's not. It's going to be feel terrible, but that's the only path to something better. So suck it up, man. <laughs> okay, well, aside from finding love, go back to finding employment. And I think it was you who published something about there's the difference between when you drop out of high school. So it's like one year versus two years. Like It's not really that different compared to if you actually finish all of high school. And even nowadays, I think a lot of people are saying university is like the basic education now where you have to do this to get a job. Do you anticipate that with life extension, we're going to raise that bar of education even higher? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I don't see any way around it. <laughs> so if you're really living for thousands of years, it's hard to believe you would do like 200 years of school before you would get a job. <laughs> but maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just a lack of imagination on my part. Here's the real thing to remember. It's not like high school dropouts can't get any job at all right now. It's just that you're consigned mostly to undesirable jobs. And then similarly, like high school graduate only, like you can get somewhat better jobs than the high school dropouts, some college a little bit better than that. So there's a gradation. But yeah, I do think that it's quite likely that in a future where people are very long lived, that if you want to get really good jobs, you're going to have to actually do multiple advanced degrees. Otherwise, you'll just look bad compared to other people who have those degrees. I have a whole book on this, but you know, what we can see is that there has been immense credential inflation over the last century. And now there are many jobs which would have seemed insane to need a high school degree to do them or to get them. Now you need a college degree. Why do you even need a high school degree to be a secretary? In the past, you didn't. Can you read and write and type? Yep. All right. You're a secretary. Boom. Now the presumption is you need it for your college degree to get that job. There are some ways in which the job is harder than it used to be, but overall, it's clearly just that the more people have a bunch of diplomas, the more you need to sort through the stack of applications by saying, well, no one with less than this is even in the running. So that is my whole model. It is an unfortunate byproduct of immortality. But again, if everybody has to get a PhD and in exchange, we could live forever, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the cutoff is just raising with time, the cutoff for basic education. So let's see, I think it's probably about, let's say, every 12 years, 15 years, the average education of the workforce goes up by a year. And according to the papers that I read that I talk about, only about 20% of that is that jobs are actually getting more complex or more intellectually demanding. And about 80% is just this credential inflation. Sorry. If you live a thousand years, you're going to spend 30 years in school, but don't be that bad. I don't want to misquote you, but I believe it was you that said that higher education is quite inefficient. Oh, yeah. So do you think that if we expand education, you know, your education is going from an average of 20 years to 60 years, will it be more inefficient? Will it be less inefficient? Oh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. like The way that almost everyone learns how to do a job is on the job training. Yeah. The actual amount of job skills that get poured into you in school are shockingly low. And even the ones that are poured into you, usually you forget them by the time that you would ever use them. So my little slogan is people like to think of education as job training, whereas it's much more realistic to say that education is a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. So it's very inefficient to make people go to school for 60 years just so they can go and get their entry level job. <laughs> it's a terrible system. And again, you might say like, it could never really be that bad, but things have gotten so bad already. I don't know why they couldn't get much worse in terms of how much education you need just to do an office job. 
four-year degree to be a secretary? That's crazy. But it's socially highly inefficient. And yet my whole argument is that it makes sense, selfishly speaking, because if everybody else has that college degree and you need to get the job, then you better get it too, or else you're shooting yourself in the foot. Okay. Well, there is my future possibly. Great. If you think it's life extension plus being in school for a long time, that package would be so great. So wonderful. (laughs) If I could like give up all my material possessions, all my social status, just to get to be 20 years old again, like in a heartbeat, I'll take that. You'd be like peak physical health again to have 30 extra years that I can enjoy life. I'll just start over from scratch, you know, just like the Rudyard Kipling poem. You can bet all your winnings on one round of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings, never breathe a word about your loss. That's just how I feel about life extension. I love it. And if I even ever started to say, well, man, now I've got to like go back to school. This stinks. (laughs) Oh, but I get to live for another 30 years and I've got imperfect health now. Yeah. Worth it. Put me in that stupid class. (laughs) Make me learn trigonometry. Whatever. (laughs) Again, forgot it 20 years ago. I think we watched this show called Altered Carbon, and there's a bunch of futuristic things that are happening. Like, I can't even tell you all of them. But in terms of what industries we see disappear and appear, are there any that you're picturing right now? Well, the whole elder care sector vanishes. Not only is that a very large sector of the US economy, it's one of the fastest growing. So basically, we take this large, fast growing sector, and I mean, you know, like depending upon the version of life extension that you have, it'll definitely fall as a share of the population, right? Because there'll be a whole bunch of people that will never get old again. So it'll be like a fixed stock of elderly people. Again, if it's the kind where you could actually reverse aging, then those people leave assisted living and re-enter the workforce. Lord knows what else they're going to do. Have a whole nother batch of kids if their fertility gets rolled back to the level of young people. And But anyway, that, that's a major sector that goes away. Let's see. And then in the education sector, I think it's very reasonable to think that the amount that people have to get will rise. If you're literally living forever, I think that the education sector would shrink as a share of the population still. So if you double the human lifespan, I don't think you're going to double the amount of years we spend in school, but maybe I'm really wrong on that. Let's see. I mean, obviously there's particular cultural genres, right? So people generally like the music that was popular when they were young, Mm -hmm. right? So you can apply that easily. Now, again, if you could actually roll back aging, then would people actually reacquire the ability to enjoy new music, for example? If you take my dad and de-age him from 83 down to 23, could I get him to like pink or something like that? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, These are some of the many fascinating questions of life extension. If it couldn't apply to anyone I care about, I'd still love for it to happen just to see what it would be like. Because, whoa, what's happening? Oh, weird. You can't make a formerly 83-year-old person who's now biologically 23 years old like pink. Just doesn't work. I don't know why. Who knows? What's the deal? I don't get it. Just be really curious just to study what's going on. Again, it's so far outside of our experience that I would tread lightly, but I'm happy to speculate. (laughs) So with immortality, a lot of people speculate that population will go up initially, at least. Obviously, resources would run out with more people. There's going to be more consumption of this finite pool of resource we have on Earth. However, we also hear that the supply of something decreases and with a greater demand, the price would also increase, meaning, you know, it gets used less because less people want to buy it or can't afford it. Which one of those two do you think is true? And what do you think about the arguments on sustainability against life extension? Do you think that we will have problems with resources with a growing population? Do you think populations will go stagnant? Is there a cutoff? Right. So first of all, I have a whole book where I talk about the economics effects of population in a chapter. So I'm 
very strongly on team, more population is great. Theoretically, there is a point where it would start to be a problem, but I see no sign we are remotely anywhere near that. So that's where I'm starting from. And in particular, while it's true that human beings consume resources, they also produce resources. And while there are many resources we think of as finite, actually what history tells us is that they are not really finite if you think about them in the right way. Namely, we're not looking for a particular kind of resource. We're looking for any resource at all that does what we want. So for example, well, you might say, look, there's a finite amount of wood on earth. So we cut that all down and burn it and then we're out. Yeah, well, maybe we'll come up with nuclear power and then we won't need fire anymore. We'll do it in a different way. There's actually a Saudi oil minister, I believe, who said, the stone age ended, but not for lack of stones. The oil age will end, but not for lack of oil. Oh. So yeah, so I'm very strongly on, on that view and I'm happy to talk about it in a lot of depth, but the world is highly sustainable by almost any reasonable measure. Resources are more abundant than ever. And again, I don't think this is the trick. A lot of this comes from the fact that human beings are the ultimate resource, the human mind in particular. And when you get more minds, you get more ideas and ideas are the classic example of what economists call non-rival good which means that one idea from one human being can benefit everyone on earth at no additional cost. Think about a YouTube video. If we had one time as many people, then it's not like every person could watch those videos 10 times as much. Instead, it just means that there would be a lower supply and people would be stuck with a smaller amount. But once the video is up, it can be enjoyed by an infinite number of people. And the key to having a lot of great content is having a lot of people, really. Very strongly on that side now as to what life extension would do to population size. Well, let's see. If you literally got rid of death, then that gets rid of the only way the population goes down. Really. Again, it could just be that we still have accidental death or death from disease and we just don't have death from aging anymore. Still, it's a very large cause of death. If I remember correctly, I think that mortality rises by like a factor of three per decade. So if we could just keep everybody's biological age at like 20, then based upon all other risks, we would have a life expectancy of, of like five to 10,000 years, I believe. Oh, wow. Right. So anyway, that we would get rid of the overwhelming way in which we ever lose population. So it would, it would almost become a one-way street where population can either stay the same or go up. And anytime you have that dynamic, it's going to go up, right? So even if 90% of people say they don't want to have kids, 10% will. And out of those, they might want to keep having new batches of kids every 20 or 30 years. So yeah, I know I would. If I lived a thousand, uh, yeah, I'd like to have hundreds of kids during that time and it'd be great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not everyone feels the same way, obviously, right? I mean, this is also one where I think a lot of people who they say, I had two kids, I raised my family, I don't want to do anymore. A hundred years later, I think they might say, well, hmm, you know, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've had any kids. <laughs> my other kids, they now look the same age as me. Uh, it's like the movie In Time. I don't know if you guys oh, have seen that. Yes. Justin Timberlake? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, hmm. It'd be nice to see some little people again. It's deeply evolved in the human heart. So as to what exactly would happen, I mean, I think with life extension, I think our birth rate would go down, which is just the number of births per fertile woman per year. But I think that the total fertility rate, which is the number of children per lifetime per woman, would probably be a lot higher. Oh. Right now for the US, that's down to like 1.7 or so. But if you live forever, I mean, it's defined... Right now, we define it as the like, number of kids you have before you turn 45. That's purely because fertility basically ends by that age. We would definitely redefine it if people were living forever. And yeah, I think it would be a lot higher than 1.7 per lifetime if people are living for 10,000 years. Because I know China had a one-child policy way back. 
Do you think we're going to have a one child per century kind of policy ever existing? I mean, ever is a long time. I'll just say I think that would be an absolutely terrible idea. And I think China did a terrible human rights violation, but also a terrible blow to their economy and society in so many levels. Never mind just like people grow up without any cousins, without any aunts, without any uncles, really creates very atomized and just you know, unfortunate society. Never mind all the infanticide that it caused creating a society that's very old where a lot of retirees are being supported by a small number of workers. Yeah, in terms of whether it would happen, well, at least in Western countries, well, let's see, before COVID, I would have just said, there's no way, it's a bad idea. And yeah, yes, Western societies do adopt a lot of bad laws, but they don't adopt bad laws that so directly crush and tyrannize over individual citizens, right? And then during COVID, I said, oh, wait, no, they will crush and tyrannize over individual citizens. I was off on that. But even that, so it really does look like it was an emergency measure and it'd be very hard to get people to tolerate that. And again, like the kind of punishment you need to enforce this kind of thing, as China saw, is of forced abortion, right? Infanticide. You need to do stuff like that to really crack down on this stuff. So I think it is quite unlikely that any Western democracy would go and have a one-child policy or even one child per century. Unless I'm really wrong and it turns out there's actually horrible consequences. If you saw that living standards were falling down to starvation levels, I think that then maybe. I think that's such an unreasonable and crazy forecast that it's just not going to happen. But I think things would have to get really bad before that would occur. I don't know if you know, there's an old Star Trek episode where people just breed to the point where they can't even move anymore <clears throat> on one planet. Yeah, It's so, so ludicrous on many levels, but I can definitely see some people saying that we should. But I also say that this is a case where fortunately, Western democracies are not evil enough to do it. Mm-hmm. evil meaning you need to have bad intentions plus a steely resolve to follow through on them and i think western democracies they're mealy mouth they're mushy they're weak which means that if they have a good idea they carry it out in a very flawed way and if they have a bad idea they carry it out in a flawed way and if your ideas are bad i want the execution to be flawed so that you don't really do it very much so brian i know you've written a book a lot on the topic of people's fear of having children But I do know from at least my anecdotal evidence that the reason for having children is to have a legacy. If you're living forever, you could be your own legacy. Do you think this would affect people's desire to have children? And to add on to that, a lot of times people have pets. They see their pets die. They don't want to have another pet because, hey, who the hell wants to see their borderline child slash pet pass away? Same scenario with kids. If you see your kids die, would that decentivize you into having kids? So this is the kind of sci-fi mortality where only I get it and I have to watch everybody else around me get old and die. That might make me not want to go and have kids, but I think that probably in the end, it wouldn't make that much difference. This desire to have kids as a legacy, I've actually don't know a single parent who's ever told me this. So this sounds more like the kind of motivation that you make up after the fact. The kinds of motivations that actually matter. First of all, I have some love to give. I really want to be a parent. And then actually very important is conformity. Other people are doing it. If other people are doing it, I don't want to be weird and not do it. Just when you notice how there are very strong social patterns in fertility, like there's a baby boom era when American fertility suddenly shot up to like four. The idea that was not based upon other people looking around and saying, other people are having a bunch of kids. Why aren't we having a bunch of kids? So this is a very human motivation to want to be like other people around you. So I think that's much more important. Anyway, I don't think that the legacy would matter very much. I think what would matter is actually people's sense of the clock is not ticking anymore. There's a lot of people who have kids because they say, look, it's never the right time, but we're going to be too old if we wait. So I think that would actually lead to a lot of delay. 
people wanting to be really sure about their partner, people wanting to be really sure that they feel ready in their lives. But again, if you're living forever, you can delay for a hundred years and say, okay, now, now I got all my decks lined up. I got Mr. Right. I've got dream job. I've got fax stacks. I got everything that I need. I worked as a nanny for five years just to make sure that it would be a good idea for me. I've done every possible thing. And of course, also remember that probably about half of all kids are unplanned. 75% of non-marital births are unplanned and about 25% of marital births are unplanned. Remember, a lot of the reason why people have kids is just that they were horny and they didn't plan ahead and were impulsive. Well, I used to say, we're fairly guaranteed to have a continuing supply of kids just from impulse alone, combined with like once people are pregnant, a lot of times people that didn't want to have a kid will say, well, I don't want to not be pregnant now. We're not going to abort the baby. Very common for someone that was making a lot of effort to not get pregnant to then make a lot of effort to make sure that their kid is born after they get pregnant. This is human nature. Like once the baby's on the way, it really flips people's views about whether it's a good thing to do. Well, shifting gears into another book you wrote, Open Borders, right? Yep. Talking about immigration, I don't know if there's a tie because I believe in the book, it's like, well, you have more earning potential possibly by immigrating than maybe in your own home country. And that's a huge driving factor for why you should immigrate. If the United States has space, then if we can get in, like, let's get in. Yep. I'm assuming people don't necessarily immigrate just for healthcare. I don't know if that's a factor, but... Would something like life extension affect the rate of immigration into countries like the U.S.? Yeah, well, if there's a country where everybody in it gets free life extension and it costs a lot of money everywhere else, then yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be trying to get in because they don't want to die. Right now, the benefits of immigration from poor countries, rich countries are so immense. You know, it's very standard that you can multiply your earnings by a factor of 10 by migrating from a country like Haiti. And then if you, on top of that, you pile on, we're also going to get hundreds of extra years of life. And yeah, that is a big extra reason. Now I would say, again, like a lot of it depends on how the technology works. If it's a reproducible technology, then I don't think it's actually going to stay in rich countries very long. I think it will spread very rapidly. Vaccines, everyone on earth will be able to get a COVID vaccine probably within three years anyway. So part of this is that when they're invented, that the people that invent them, they're very worried about public relations aspect. And so they are not charging anywhere near what they could actually get away with in terms of actual desire to get the vaccination. If life extension is like that, then, and again, it's highly reproducible at scale, then I don't think it's going to be a very important factor because it'll spread all over the world in a few years. Closely related to this, there are a bunch of people who told me, oh, hardly anyone would want life extension. There are surveys where people claim this. And I just say, actions speak louder than words. And this is one where I really will give you like 100 to 1 odds that a very large share of the population will do it once it's available. Conformity matters. As long as it's weird, then people are weirded out by it, less interested in doing it. But also it's one where it's one thing to just be hypothetically, would you want to live forever? Oh, no. But then like, okay, now you can actually live forever. Oh, <laughs> that really changes things from when it was just a hypothetical. Now, yeah, I guess I would like to live forever. I mean, just obviously we look at healthcare, right? It's hard to find any healthcare that's actually highly effective that not get adopted very widely. There's a few Christian scientists and people like that. But if you have something that could do what life extension is supposed to do, give me unlimited healthy life, I mean, then like who could turn that out or if you could reverse aging? Oh, yes. The number of elderly people who have just aches and pains and you say, hey, guess what? You're going to live forever. You're going to be young again. And like all those problems you're always complaining about, they're gone. The number of elderly people that would say no to that on any kind of religious or philosophical or any other grounds, I don't think even conformity would stop someone that has a lot of pain. 
your friends will make fun of you. Yeah, well, they don't feel my pain, so screw them. <laughs> I'm getting life extension. I'm getting aging reversal, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> I think we're coming up to the end here, aren't we? So, Marvin, do you have any uh, questions you specifically want to ask that we may have missed? Oh, yeah. By the way, the one you were talking about economists and about half were thinking it wouldn't be good for the economy. The real thrust of that is that economists are ultra pro-life extension compared to the general U.S. public, right? So it's worth saying that. And it was one where I was a little worried that economists wouldn't be on board. And now economists are much more favorable to this idea. And again, it's just a question of, well, why would you be against it? Like, who wouldn't want more years of healthy life? I guess while I'm here, let me just denounce Leon Cass. Oh, Leon Cass! <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's not just him, but I have this saying that bioethics is to ethics as astrology is to astronomy. And Leon Cass has been trying to make arguments against the betterment of human life for 50 years. And he lost in vitro fertilization. There's now millions of people on Earth alive because of this technology. He said it shouldn't be done. And it's not like he now goes around saying, I was still right. The arguments are sound. We need to stop this and deny hope to infertile couples. Nope, my argument is good. So like, like, I don't care how society's evolved. It's all about just stopping progress. And once he loses, then it's like, well, move on to the next kind of progress to try to stop. Okay. Call <laughs> 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 oh, <Leon> cast. <laughs> so Brian, since we're coming to near the end of our podcast and we've been recording for quite some time, if there's one thing the audience should take away from today's entire conversation, what do you think it should be? Hmm. Let's see that life extension, if it could be achieved, would be fantastic. I don't see any sign the technology is anywhere close, unfortunately. I have a couple of friends who are really optimistic, but when I press them on why they're optimistic, either they just have a really odd definition of life extension where freezing your brain is good enough, and then yeah, eventually I'll be uploaded to a computer, and that's not what I'm looking for, right? Or they just don't really have any answers, and it's like, well, I mean, like we figured out a bunch of other things where a man can fly, so we'll be able to reverse aging. You're like, hmm. That's not very convincing, actually. I would love to be convinced this is going to happen soon. I really hope it does. I think I'd have to be truly ancient before I wouldn't even accept the deal where I just get frozen at my current age. If I were 90, yeah, I think I'm going to be in a lot of pain at 90. So much pain in my 40s. Just like minor aches and pains, but still like pretty bad. If I were 90, I imagine I'll be like hobbling, maybe in a wheelchair, but still, yeah, I'd like to just freeze it at 90. I have to be like really decrepit before I would not want to keep going. The world's an amazing place and there's like endless fun things to do. So why would anyone want to end it? All of the philosophical objections to life extension are truly lame because look, everyone will take another year of healthy life. So why not five? Why not 10? Why not a hundred? And then these various fears about the social harm to it. Look, if we had immortality and then someone said, let's start dying. Like, like, you'd say, that's crazy. <laughs> We're not going to start dying now. No. Well, it would solve some problems. Well, you ever heard of the cure being worse than the disease, man? Dying <laughs> is your solution. There's too many old people running businesses. No, no way in hell will we take that deal. No. We want to live forever. It'd be fantastic if we get it. Unfortunately, probably be waiting a long, long time, if ever. But it would be great from almost any point of view. And Fingers crossed that it works. Please work. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about economics and your work, because, you know, we've never had someone in economics on it, but if they want to learn more about you, support your work, how can they get involved or where can they go on the website? Well, let's see. So I blog for EconLog. That's exactly as it sounds. 
And then uh, I'm uh, Google's number one Kaplan. So if you just put in my last name with a C, C A P L A N, then you'll get a ton of stuff by me. Life extension is something where it's only a very tiny share of my work. Of course, I have done a lot on population, which is relevant to life extension, right? And also on the general economic effects of population change and so on, economic effects of aging. So all that stuff is relevant. And again, of course, you know, open borders, which that is my very big pro-immigration book. If you are pro-immigration, then it does make sense to be pro-population and vice versa. It all does fit together. I'm really glad people are working on this. It's one where the arguments in favor of it happening, if it can happen, are immensely strong. The arguments against are laughably bad. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly. For immigration, there's a lot of arguments that are much better than laughably bad. There's a lot of arguments where it's like, wow, that's a pretty serious argument. But saying that people should die, no, there's nothing good on that. On some level, I do think there's a lot of people, especially if you are very religiously committed, to think, well, gee, if we live forever, then you kind of don't need us anymore. Modify your product to deal with the evolving social situation. (laughs) (laughs) Don't try to kill people, okay? Stop that. Knock it off. (laughs) Knock off all the death. Now. (laughs) Well, yeah, what a way to conclude. And yeah, so for all you guys listening, if there's anything we discussed today, the links will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, Brian, for being on I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. And definitely send me the URL when it's ready. So I got 50,000 Twitter followers, so I'll give you some advice.